You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, August 9th today, and I'm Andreas Dino Larsen, the senior editor at Real Vision. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by a friend of mine, Marco Papich, a partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. Marco, it's uh, great to see you. Great to be on again. Thank you so much, Andres. Marco, uh, I think the last time the two of us had a public chat on, on market developments, I think it was four or five weeks ago, you told me to go short oil, to buy the euro versus the dollar and to load up on equities, uh, spot on, basically. So I'll allow you just a brief victory lap here initially. Um, why have you been so right over the past month here? Well, because we, we got lucky, obviously. It's, uh, that's, we always have to praise Lady Luck. Uh, but I also, um, you know, we saw the slowdown in growth and uh, also slowdown in, equity, uh, in commodities. So basically, my team and I, we've been long bonds, short commodities since May. Um, and then oil diverged from the rest of the complex, you know, from the rest of the commodity complex throughout June. And we tripled down on the short oil call at the top of the month, about June 20th, uh, largely because of geopolitical reasons. Uh, but demand was part of the picture as well. What I would say right now, Andres, what's interesting is that the demand side has proven correct. That view was right. Like the slowdown uh, in economic growth in China, Europe, U.S. has articulated itself in the oil price. But I would then stand firm on my geopolitical view and say, hey, you know what? There's more downside if the risk premium dissipates. And, and, and let's touch a bit upon that, because um, if we look uh, at the geopolitical risk picture right now, uh, I think it's fair to say that some of the arguments that you used, say, four to six weeks ago surrounding the Russian uh, and Ukrainian conflict, they haven't come true yet. Um, so what should take on the near-term outlook for the supply picture uh, related to geopolitics when it comes to natural gas and oil? Well, I think, uh, you know, one thing is on natural gas, um, there is there's now starting to be enough math done by people rather than hyperventilation. And what I mean by that is that the math is very simple. Russians screwed up. They should have cut off gas in February if they were serious, if they had the guts. But it looks to me like they really care about that $50 billion they get from Europe every year. And so they uh, equivocated, they hesitated. And so they didn't cut off enough natural gas. 
that's important because Europe is going to reach their goal of storage. It's like game over. Like the, Europe is going to be fine through the winter. Sorry to like kind of, you know, um, ruin everyone's uh, favorite thing to dwell on, which is that Europeans are somehow going to freeze themselves. They're not. Um, and that's that's really important because one, it means that some of the you know uh, increases in prices in natural gas in Europe are probably overdone. The second thing is it also tells us a little bit about what Russia really stands for. Uh, Russia is not trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Uh, they are just trying to deal with their domestic politics, and they uh, really care more about making enough money than like conquering all of Ukraine. Um, they didn't have the guts to cut off gas in time. They allowed Europeans to escape the winter. Um, and that's a really big mistake that Russians have made. The second thing is they have had no success in Donbass. You know, we have uh, a map I can show you here of like Donbass difference between May 26th and July 27th. The conquered territory by Russians is, is nothing. They're, they've conquered a little bit in Luhansk. They, they can claim they now control all of it. But Donetsk remains uh, quite contested. And that just tells you that if they cannot, in two months of summer combat, uh, you know, finish the job in the part of Ukraine that is surrounded by Russia, where Russia faces no logistical or supply problems, and it's actually inhabited by Russian ethnics, not Russian-speaking Ukrainians, but Russian ethnics, if you can't win there, like, seriously, where can you win? And so I think we're on track for this geopolitical risk premium to dissipate. Because I just don't believe Russians have the guts to pursue the war or even natural gas brinkmanship with Europe uh, for too long. We'll get back to the geopolitical debate a bit uh, later in the show. But, um, Mark, every, everybody's waiting for the big CPI uh, report tomorrow from the U.S. Uh, I see that consensus uh, expects 8.7 for headline inflation versus 9.1 uh, a month ago. And for core inflation, the consensus is now 6.1% versus 5.9% a month ago. And I see that the uh, UBS is, for example, calling for a big positive surprise to core. Um, ahead of this huge inflation report what you're thinking on inflation you know i think uh first of all i think inflation is really important <laughs> that's <laughs> why i focused i know wow thanks marco for coming on real mission and telling us this but you know this is why we focus so much on oil prices uh, and this is what i said when you and i hung out together uh like a month ago so if you look at the first chart that i brought here together i mean it's very simple it's just what happened in the 70s during stagflation and i mean you know like this is obviously manipulated charts. I did work on sell side for 10 years. I know how to manipulate a chart. But like the point is, if CPI peaks, um, good things happen to equity markets. And I find it funny because on Twitter, you have these kind of like inflationistas who are like, oh, if we go from 9.1 to 8.5, you guys are all going to scream deflation. Like, no, 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 I get it. We're in an inflationary regime. We're never going back under 3% in a non-recessionary quarter for the rest of this decade. I'm in that camp. I'm in the camp that long-term inflation expectations are too low, but it does matter when CPI peaks, as you can see here. So the equity rally is not stupid. It's, uh, it's, it could be wrong, don't get me wrong, inflation may not peak, but it's not stupid if inflation did peak. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that if you look at the next set of charts, oil prices obviously matter. As I said, my view on oil prices ended up being right, um, but I had two reasons for why I was bearish on oil. One was demand, the other was geopolitics. Demand is articulated in the price now, so oil prices fell. But I don't think geopolitical risk has dissipated. And you can see these two charts. On the left-hand side, it's front month Brent futures, and then the five-year forward, still a gap between the two. On the right-hand side is Brent oil prices and Chinese non-oil imports. 
very tight coincident uh, relationship, now there's a divergence in both. I think there's another 12, 20% decline in oil prices that could happen if uh, the geopolitical view is correct. If we go to the next slide, you can see the geopolitical view, what I was telling you uh, just a little bit earlier, Andreas, on the right-hand side. Can you even see the difference between those two maps on the right-hand side? One is from May, one is from July. Hey, good going, Russia. You're really kicking some butt. No, you're not. You don't know what you're doing. You literally cannot fight a war. By the way, as an opposite comment here, do people think that Finland and Sweden are joining NATO out of fear? No, no, no. They're joining out of lack of fear. What kept Finland and Sweden out of NATO was fear of Russia. Now that nobody in Europe is afraid of Russia anymore because they can't conquer freaking Donetsk, that's what you're seeing. Like they're losing face. They're losing the most important part of their arsenal, which isn't fighter jets. It's not tanks. It's credibility that they're actually capable of fighting a war and, and they've lost it. And so I think Russia, given their performance, has to essentially proclaim victory, raise the mission accomplished barrel, uh, banner. And when that happens, oil prices should come down. Now, a couple of other charts I just want to throw out there. I mean, you've seen this, Andreas, you know this better than me, but like next slide, you know, New York Fed global supply chain pressure index is collapsing. ISA manufacturing supplier deliveries are collapsing. So these are all, this all is basically telling you that there's an easing pressure of supply chains. Next set of charts shows you very strong inventory rebuilds on the left-hand side, total business inventories through the roof, retail trade inventory to sales ratio are recovering too. This is important because basically after the pandemic ended, all the retailers, all the producers rushed to recreate supply. Um, but now that there's this supply, and at the same time we have a slowdown, you're going to start seeing price cuts as Walmart already announced, which is I think very important. Uh, for inflation. And then finally, next set of slides, fiscal policy is restrictive. Forget about this uh, stimulus bill they passed. It's not going to make much of a difference. Fiscal policy has been restrictive due to rate of change, something you argued earlier this year as well. Right-hand side, you can see M2 just collapsed. Um, you know, all of these charts. And then the next like, set of chart, uh, Zillow rent index uh, has tapers coming down. Shelter hasn't yet responded to that, but I think eventually it will. And then finally, you know, used vehicle price indexes stop some of its crazy gyrations. All of this comes down to the last point, which is very simple. If we're right about oil prices, and you can see on the left-hand side, all the other commodities year to date, and then oil is kind of a like an outlier, although it has come down. If oil prices join the rest of the commodity complex in terms of performance and are year to, di year to date like negative, I think uh, oil price, oil price, uh, decline will help risk assets such as equities. What I have on the right-hand side is a chart rolling three-year correlation between oil prices and S&P 500 monthly return. You can see that during the disinflationary era of risk parity, like oil prices were correlated positively with equities. You know, every time oil prices went up, it was kind of like an upside to growth surprise, like, oh, cool. Nobody cared what the Fed would do because of oil prices. They weren't targeting headline inflation. But now that on June 15th, Jay Powell said specifically, I am targeting headline. I think this correlation is the opposite. And the more oil prices decline, the better it will be for equities because investors will be able to say, okay, we're probably at peak hawkishness and, you know, the Fed can still raise rates, but they don't have to do it 75 basis points. They can do it 50, 25. And in my view, at elevated CPI prints, that is your Fed put. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, uh, I tend to agree, Marco. Uh, I'm a simple man, and I think the macro picture is pretty simple right now. If you get the oil price right, you get macro right. So, what makes you so convinced that the geopolitical risk premium? Will dissipate over the next couple of quarters. I mean, Ukraine's over, in my view. Like now, obviously, people will quote that and say, like, Marco, you were wrong. Ukraine war is still going on. You got to think about geopolitics the way you do about markets. Um, so we're not here to talk about Ukrainian war. Like, that's not what I do for a living. I'm not a geopolitical analyst for the sake of geopolitics. I'm I'm a geopolitical strategist for the sake of being an investment strategist. And what that means is that if the second derivative of geopolitical risk premium like, declines because the war is in a stasis, the Ukrainian war can last for the next 100 years. You shouldn't care. And by the way, there is a war, a serious war that killed a lot of people, including a lot of Americans, that has been going on for the last 69 years. It's called the Korean War. And guess what? Nobody really cares about the Korean War. That war never ended. There was never a peace agreement. There's still a line of contact. People still get killed across that line of contact. So my point is that the war, uh, the more this war gets bogged down in Donbass, and provided that obviously the view is right, it doesn't spread out of Donbass, I think that in six months, the geopolitical risk premium will dissipate out of oil prices. One, because there won't be a risk of further sanctions. And by the way, like the West could sanction Russia in a much more serious way. The fact that it didn't tells you their intentions. Like there's no secondary sanctions. In other words, Indian companies are get, not getting sanctioned for buying Russian oil, but they are if they buy Iranian oil. The U.S. could have been a lot tougher on this issue, and it hasn't been. So one, I think that uh, there won't be any, the risk of more sanctions will dissipate. Second, I think the risk of Europeans actually implementing that oil embargo dissipates as well. You've got Italian elections coming up probably will produce a populist coalition of moderately pro-Russian parties. It's not fair to call them pro-Russian, by the way. Let's call them ambivalent towards Russia. And so you will start seeing many European countries skirt the sanctions or say like, hey, listen, we like that $30 discount on Ural's blend. Like, sorry, like our economy is, you know, like suffering. So we're going to go and do what Hungary is doing, what Bulgaria is doing, all these exceptions that other countries have gotten on piped oil, on seaborne oil. I can see Italy asking for one of those as well six months from now, provided that I'm right that the war is bogged down in the part of Ukraine that no European really cares that much about. I've, by the way, noticed a very interesting pattern when it comes to Italian exports. Uh, the Italian exports to Turkey, they've skyrocketed. Uh, and the Turkish exports to to Russia, they have skyrocketed during the same period of time. Um, so I basically think that the Italians are already exporting uh, to Russia, circumventing the sanctions via Turkey. Uh, but that's a whole different story. We have a question from the audience that I would like to, to throw into the debate here. Um, it's from Jim asking you, Marco, what's the end game for Russia? Should this standstill in the invasion of Ukraine um, continue? Um, you know, it's it's difficult to say, but uh, I think nothing positive. Uh, you mm. know, it's interesting that a kind of surface level analysis tells us Russia is doing great. Current account surplus is growing, ruble is strong, and you know they conquered more territory, you know, because they need it. Uh, first and foremost, they conquered the West Virginia of Europe, and and I mean that with no 
no criticism of West Virginia. I just mean it. Like they conquered the part of Europe that produces coal. Like big deal. It's not the 19th century. Like let's let's relax here. Nothing that they've gotten in Ukraine is strategic, including Crimea. By the way, Crimea is not even strategic to Russia. Their main military base in the Black Sea is Novorossiysk, not Sevastopol. It's not the mid of 19th century. And the Russian Black Sea fleet, by the way, is pathetic. Like the Greek Navy could sink it in 10 minutes. So Russians got nothing out of this. And the surface level analysis of kind of macro factors like current account surplus, you know, really don't reveal the depth of the problems that Russia will face over the next several years. So what I would say is that once the patriotic fervor dissipates, once Russian people kind of get over the fact that they're now a pariah, which, you know, sucks and it's not a nice place to be, it tends to create internal cohesion. People rally around the flag, around their president, say, hey, listen, if the West doesn't like us, screw you. You know, there's a lot of that happening in Russia right now. And, and it's a very human emotion. But six, 12 months from now, when they take account of what they got for the cost that they had to pay, I think that that's not a good place to be if you are uh, in the Kremlin right now. I mean, you have to understand that the faster you end this war, the faster you end this conflict, the more chances you have to survive the next five years. The more you double down and triple down on it, the higher the chances of uh, some sort of a domestic revolt. I wanted to play a soundbite for you uh, from a debate I had with uh, the former executive of Bank of America, David Wu, uh, who's got Taiwanese roots, by the way, um, in relation to what's going on in Taiwan and uh, the potential correlation to what's going on in uh, Ukraine at the moment. His point is that uh, the U.S. is basically behind most of the turmoil in both uh, places, uh, but he also thinks that August will be a make it or break it month. So let's listen to David and get back to that discussion. But now with the U.S. on the offensive vis-a-vis -vis China, you're going to have to think, if you're achieving pain, you're going to think twice. If you've decided that's it, you know what? You know, it's impossible to find a middle ground with the U.S. And the U.S. now wants my head, wants to basically, you know, basically go after Taiwan. Then China will have no choice but to basically, you know, <laughs> cross that bridge and basically um, and make Russia great, <laughs> you know? So I think from that point of view, and, and so I think this is where it's going to come in because I, was, I would say probably before the end of August, we will know how the situation in Ukraine is going to play out. The entire interview with David Wu is available on the Real Vision platform for Essential Plus and Pro subscribers. Marco, uh, in relation to what David just said in this soundbite, uh, first of all, do you concur with the view that August is a make it or break it month for the crisis in Ukraine? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, if you look at those two maps I showed, Russians have wasted two months. And if they waste another month at some point, you know, you have to ask the question, do they even have any uh, initiative left? So I would agree that August is very important for the conflict in Ukraine that will show whether my view is right or not, whether this is now stasis or whether there's a renewed initiative uh, by Russia. Let's assume for a second that Russia will actually be able to gain territory uh, in the eastern parts of Ukraine through this month. Do you think that will allow China to go on the offense versus Taiwan as well? So, no, I don't think so. You know, because first of all, um, the leap that the Russians would have to make to illustrate success in this operation would have to be great. Um, 
you know, like think about it. If Russia manages to conquer some territory and they walk away with Donbas, some parts of Kherson, Zaporizhia, like that's kind of like the, I don't know, Paris Saint-Germain winning TF1. You know, like it's, and for all of those who are not Europeans, obviously Andres and I are kind of like geeking out here. But like Paris Saint-Germain is like this great global club that's always going to win the French League. But they're really trying to win Champions League. So when China looks over to Russia and Ukraine, like winning Donbass is something that like the least, the least that Russians should have done. The fact that they are likely not going to be able to renew their push into Kiev, Kharkiv and uh, Odessa, you know, those are going to be an, like an alarm bells are going off in Beijing. This is much harder than, than we think. And also, by the way, just a stupid point, but Taiwan is an island. You know, like there's, there's an even greater problem. Like you have to actually successfully amphibiously land on this place. So that's the first issue. The second issue is I just think the Chinese are much, much smarter. So I agree with David's point that the U.S. does have an incentive to draw its rivals into these intractable conflicts. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, I've written about this. I call it the uh, Machiavellian America. There's something waking up in the United States of America. And it's this, um, you know, this, it's this realization that not that the world is not unipolar, not that the global system is not anchored by America. Why should the U.S. carry the weight of maintaining that global order? And that was something that uh, President Trump made very clear during his presidency. But it's something that's actually seeped into the Biden administration as well. And that's why you're seeing the Biden administration become very comfortable throwing these grenades kind of into Eastern Europe, into, into Asia. It's not that the Biden administration is necessarily Machiavellian. You know, people are not smoking cigars in like a smoke-filled room in the White House making these things up. But U.S. simply has a much greater risk tolerance for geopolitical conflict than, for example, you know, Taiwan's neighbors in Asia or Europeans themselves. And so you will see America definitely prod both China and Russia. I don't want to say they're trying to do it on purpose, that they're trying to draw them into conflict. But if conflict ensues, America's not necessarily going to look at it as a tragedy. So that's the first point. I agree with that. However, it takes two to tango, right? Russians said, okay, we'll dance. Let's go. I don't think the Chinese are stupid. I don't think they're going to allow themselves to be drawn into this. And there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, the only part of the Chinese economy that's worked is exports. They don't have internal demand. And this isn't like zero COVID policy related. The Chinese consumer is at the end of their debt supercycle. The private sector is massively leveraged. So for the next, for the remaining years of this decade, China's going to have to remain addicted to exports as source of growth. And so if you, you know, try to militarily reunify with Taiwan at the cost of cutting off the only part of the economy that works, I think you will, you will experience greater domestic internal risk than if you just remain in the status quo. And so I don't think that China will take that next step, at least for the remainder of this decade. There's other constraints too. They don't have control of their uh, sea lanes that are very important in terms of energy and commodity imports. Uh, they're still at the mercy of the US Navy, particularly the Fifth Fleet, which can shut the Straits of Hormuz to shipping to China. These are all the reasons why I think Beijing will, will take a more rational, more calculated approach and say, look, we'll wait this out. Um, unlike the Russians. 
We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Interesting take, Marco. In, in relation to the inflation debate, um, I think it is kind of underreported how important China is for the global inflation cycle overall. Uh, and if we look at the developments in um, commodity space since uh, the early summer, basically, we've seen a landslide in several industrial commodities. Uh, we've also seen a landslide in the wheat price, for example. Uh, so what's your take on the overall outlook for commodities, given the turmoil that we've seen internally in China when it comes to the economic outlook? You know, like my view has always been that the zero COVID policy is secondary. It's a red herring. It's a non sequitur. Don't focus on it. Like if they end zero COVID policy tomorrow, I'm not bullish on commodities or anything. Like China is, it, China has a chronic illness. This isn't like an acute illness. This is a chronic one. And it's again, the private sector leverage issue. So they are where we were in 2009, 2010. As such, and they're not willing to ramp up public sector investments to offset private sector. So until they do, I remain you know, bearish on industrial commodities. Now, you're right, there's been a landslide, but if you look at my chart, they've bottomed and mm. there was a little bit of pickup in some of these China-related uh, commodities because of a hope that they would start um, infrastructure spending, real estate bailouts, and so on. Uh, we're actually very bearish at Clock Tower Group. We, and, and by the way, we have an office in Shanghai. I think we have the best China research um, when it comes to uh, investment research out there. And our view has been right this year. We've told clients, do not buy this kind of like uh, narrative that they are ready to stimulate. We think the stimulus is going to have to wait until March of next year, maybe in a, maybe November. And so I think that there's more down like in industrial commodities. Long term though, Andreas, I just want to be very clear. I'm a secular bull on all commodities, oil, wheat, whatever. We're in a world that is inflationary. We're in a world where commodities are going to, you know, rip over the next five years. It's just that every secular bull market is going to have moments of despair. And we are in that interregnum of a secular bull market in commodities. So if you're a long-term investor, like a pension fund, now is the time to find some managers in the commodity space. If you're a trader, which I would uh, probably argue most people watching this are more like shorter term view. You know, just because you have a long-term bullish commodity view doesn't mean you want to buy this dip. China is not ready yet to uh, to to kind of do a 180-degree turn and pull the investment lever. And they are going to have to do that eventually. Um, why do I think they will do that? Why do I think they will interrupt deleveraging, which has been Xi Jinping's, one of his main policies? I think it's just because, you know, they will face domestic political risk next year if they don't stabilize growth at some point. And I don't think that ending zero COVID will be enough. They'll have to pull the public investment reliever, and that will be the moment to buy back into um, commodities um, with, with, with real size. Let's throw a few questions from the audience into the mix here, Marco. Um, when I look on, on my screen here, we get a lot of questions in relation to so-called deglobalization when we talk about China. Um, what's your take on the so-called reshoring trend given your view on Chinese geopolitics? 
You know, so I think China has peaked as a global power. And I know I'm the very, very lonely person on that island. You know, I've got my lawn chair out. I've got my beer. Like, no one else is on this corner. Um, it's just not a popular view. You know, American hawks want China to be a threat. So they're like, oh, my God, China's going to overtake us. And then you have other people who think that China's just great and it's going to continue to do well. I think China's, you know, somewhere where it is. It's just probably it. Uh, as such, I don't think they're going to be that assertive, actually. I think geopolitically... And by the way, empirically, we can we can show evidence that China has taken a step back in aggression. And I know this is very unpopular view in the West, uh, but them flying some jets over their wayward province of Taiwan is massively different from what they were doing from 2011 to 2016. 2011, they went they almost went to war with Japan over Senkaku Daiyu Islands. 2012 to 2016, they built man-made islands and put weapons on them. And they engaged a Vietnamese and Philippine fleets and Malaysians as well in like almost confrontations. So all of that stuff, like when was the last time you seriously thought about the South China Sea? Not recently, because they actually haven't been that aggressive in their near abroad. So where am I going with this? Um, the world is not bipolar. It's just not. The U.S. and China are not U.S. and the Soviet Union. And because of that, a lot of countries are going to continue to trade with China which is going to force U.S. to trade with China as well. This is very much the kind of a multipolar world we saw at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, before World War I, where countries like the U.K., France, and Russia, which were in a military alliance against Germany, nonetheless traded with Germany, and the trade actually went up. It's because while they were military allies with each other, they didn't trust each other enough to cut off trade with Germany. You know, if France said, okay, we won't trade, the UK would be like, okay, cool, we'll take that trade. That's the world we're in right now. And that's why, you know, the coalition that the US has tried to build against China has not worked at all. Why is this important? It's important because it maintains multipolarity. But it's also important because if China does something rash, it could flip the world from that multipolar setting, which is actually quite beneficial to Beijing, to a bipolar setting. And that's why a military reunification with Taiwan would really not play in China's interest at all. If the West is completely united with Japan, Australia, South Korea, like it's kind of game over for Russia and China. They are in no way, not even remotely capable of threatening the West. Um, and so China has no interest in forcing that coalition uh, between Europe and, and the US. And I, I don't think they're gonna uh, do anything to, to make that happen. We have a great question from uh, Roger coming in as well uh, in relation to the so-called geopolitical risk premium in the oil price. Is there a practical way to gauge the exact size of that risk premium? Uh, no, you know, <laughs> you know, and the reason that the, well, I mean, the reason the answer is no is because if you knew where oil prices should be at any one period in time, you would be a billionaire and you wouldn't share it with anyone. So you cannot gauge where it is relative to where it should be. It's it's very difficult. So what I do is, you know, I use kind of proxies that are coincident indicators with oil prices. It's the best I can do. Yeah, fair point. Um, I, and I would totally agree with that view, by the way. We we have a um, a final question that I would like to, um, uh, to throw at you as well, Marco. Um, it's in relation to the CPI report tomorrow. Um, yeah. We haven't talked too much about it, actually. But uh, we have a question from Sebastian uh, on Twitter asking um, for uh, the potential um, 
outcome if inflation uh, comes in higher than expected. Uh, what would be the ramifications if inflation comes in higher, we should expect further rate hikes, et cetera, uh, for the liquidity situation um, among central banks? Do you have a view on that? I don't have really a view on liquidity, but I, mm. I, I do think that it's a very simple. Like if CPI surprises to the upside, yeah, I mean, we'll face down downside risk to equity markets. And I actually think, look, I have been uh, very constructive on equities since we hit 3,600. Uh, I went basically long in May, which was too early, uh, but it's turned out okay. I do think that we're now at a point where we probably need a little bit of a reversal. And so I think we could go down to 4,3800 in September particularly. Uh, I think September is usually a bad month. Seasonality matters. And so, you know, you could see some reversals um, basically due to risks of inflation, due to risks that maybe the Fed hasn't reached peak hawkishness. This is a narrative that's going to go back and forth. It's not a straight line. Uh, nonetheless, the charts I presented today, the view on oil I have kind of tells me, look, CPI does have to peak at some point, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's a month from now. Now, I understand the counter to this argument is wage price spiral. Look, wages can go up and inflation doesn't have to keep going up. You know, wages are not the end all be all. They're important. And I am in the inflation camp. I'm in the camp that believes that we're probably between three and 5% on CPI for the rest of this decade in non-recessionary quarters. But 9%, I think, is unsustainable. And I, I think it's fair to say, uh, also in relation to Sebastian's question, that if inflation prints um, higher and higher over the coming quarter still, then it's bad news for liquidity, at least if we measure it as um, the stock of M2, uh, because central banks will continue to hike, they will continue to tighten the balance sheet policies, and that's usually bad news for the broad liquidity picture. So. In my view, by the end of the day, the, the takeaway for, for crypto assets, uh, also part of Sebastian's question, uh, is basically that uh, if we get higher and higher inflation, it's bad news for crypto. Crypto is a hedge against the monetary base, but it's not a hedge against inflation per se. Uh, Marco, any final comments ahead of the uh, inflation report tomorrow? No, good, good luck yeah. trading. And, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully the views continue to be lucky and right. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've peaked, uh, but I've said it before <laughs> and I was wrong so far. Um, thanks so much for, for joining the show today, Marco. I, Thank I, you so I've much, made, Appreciate I've it. I've made it my, uh, my trademark to always conclude the Real Vision uh, daily briefing with a meme. Um, and uh, the meme that I want to show today uh, was a meme that I received in my inbox. Uh, I think it was late yesterday. <laughs> and I think it's a hilarious take on the uh, natural gas situation yeah. in Europe. So I wanted to end the show on, on that meme. Thanks again, Marco, for joining. Um, and thanks for watching out there. I will be back tomorrow with uh, Darius Dale at the Real Real Vision Daily Briefing. See you tomorrow. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.